Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Welcome to Mornings with Carmen. It is the Mornings Without Carmen edition. I'm Dr. Peter Kapsner filling in for today and for tomorrow as Carmen is away on holiday. Always good to be starting the day with all of you as part of our faith radio community all over this country. I think Paul Perot is somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 countries as well, besides uh, the United States I of America. I think we are up to around 70 when we looked at all 70. our podcasts and where people have been listening. Yeah, it's pretty cool how the app and our website have really expanded our reach. Well, and it just uh, speaks to the power of being part of this Christian government, this Christian community, as it were, because it does transcend national borders. We spent a lot of time in hour one talking with Michael Byrd about the intersection of religious freedom and government. And it just, it was one of those conversations. Again, I think people should head back to myfaithradio.com and check out the podcast and the Mornings with Carmen show because Michael had a lot to say about how we can respond as believers to some of the really troubling events going on in our world today. That's right. And again, you can find them at myfaithradio.com or if you have the free Faith Radio app, you'll be able later this morning to pull up the podcast and give it a listen. Yeah, one of the more difficult things that we've been walking through these last 48 to 72 hours, of course, is the horrific events coming out of Texas, a school shooting, some 20 people losing their lives. Uh, Really a difficult situation. And um, I covered the NBA for a number of years as part of NBA.com, the National Basketball Association. And uh, one of my favorite people that I had a chance to interview, even though I might have disagreed with him in some different kinds of ways, was the coach of the world champion Golden State Warrior, Steve Kerr. And Steve Kerr lost his father to gun violence a number of years ago. And his uh, team, again, the Golden State Warriors, are in the conference finals in the NBA playoffs right now. And he took to the podium uh, in the last 24 hours to discuss these school shootings. We're going to talk with Jason Romano in just a moment from Sports Spectrum magazine about uh, what happened here in Texas. But we've got a couple clips this morning, uh, Paul, that we'd like to start with here right now. And then we'll get into this a little further. So let's hear a little bit from Steve Kerr, what he had to say yesterday. I'm not going to talk about basketball. Nothing's uh, happened with our team in the last six hours. We're going to start the same way tonight. Um, any basketball questions uh, don't matter. Um, since we left shoot-around, 14 children were killed 400 miles from here. And a, and a teacher. And in the last 10 days, we've had elderly black people killed in a supermarket in Buffalo. We've had Asian churchgoers killed in Southern California, and now we have children murdered at school. When are we going to do something? I think that last part, when he pounded the podium in a a genuine emotional expression of frustration, regardless of where you fall politically on the topic of guns and gun ownership and the Second Amendment, um, we are talking about the profound uh, and brutal loss of life of innocent people 
uh, who are just starting their day, as any of us might. And uh, when we come back in just a moment, we're going to talk with Jason Romano about these events through the lens of Steve Kerr, play another clip in which he talks about uh, sort of the the psychological rhythms we get into about uh, offering prayers and condolences, promising to do better. But we kind of just carry on. And is there a different way in which Christians can engage this issue? So stay with us. Jason Romano up next on Mornings Without Carmen. It's about nine minutes past the top of the hour, and Peter Kapsner filling in for Carmen LeBurge. And we're joined at this time by Jason Romano, who used to work for ESPN and now as a journalist as part of Sports Spectrum, which uh, covers different sorts of athletic headlines through the lens of our Christian faith. Good morning, Jason. Good morning, Peter. How are you? Well, good. Uh, and I'm sure, like you, though, troubled uh, by the events that we've seen. I know you and I have probably have enough grass sure. under our sandals, as it were, to see a number of these school shootings, including Sandy Hook, all the way back to Columbine. I remember from Colorado, and now this most recent experience is part of a litany. And I would just we, we played this clip from the coach of the Golden State Warriors, Steve Kerr, in which he, he ended his address with pounding the the podium there and saying, when when is it going to be enough? I'm sure you saw some of this as part of what you cover. What's your initial take on what he had to say? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's a difficult you know time for all of us as just humans uh, to put ourselves in the shoes of those who um, you know are going through what they're going through in Texas and even in other places like Buffalo, as mentioned. And and uh, it's hard. Um, what I heard from Steve Kerr, uh, I thought was important to hear um, because in, in a moment y- there was some political underlying with what he said at the end. Uh, and I, and I understand that, um, you know, I'm not a big political guy, if I'm being honest with you, I don't, I don't side on a, on a certain team uh, in the way that I vote. Um, but I watched him as, as just a human who is frustrated and saddened. And, um, you know, I was moved by it. You know, I, I really I thought it was an important time for him to speak up like that. And and in the way that he spoke up was really just with passion uh, and, and with empathy and uh, with anger, you know, and sadness. And he's right. When is enough going to be enough? You know, I, I'm not sitting here telling you or going to tell anybody that we need to take people's rights to bear arms away or that, you know, one thing is going to fix this. But I live in Connecticut. And Sandy Hook is less than an hour from where I live. Mm. And I walked through that 10 years ago, just like everybody did. And you thought at that time that something would change. And clearly not a lot has changed. And this is through different presidencies, different people in office on both sides of the table. So I think everybody's to blame here. Is this a mental health you know, issue? Yes. Is this a guns issue? Yes. Can it be both? I think it can. And I wish that we would stop, you know, and that's why I liked what Steve Kerr had to say, to stop kind of dilly-dallying around what's going on uh, and saying, you know, maybe we'll investigate this over here. Maybe, you know, this is a problem because of these politicians specifically who are continuing to do this or that. My gosh, we lost we lost 18 kids. Mm. These are our kids, our little kids. You know, this, I mean, obviously all school shootings or or shootings in general, mass shootings are terrible, but we're talking about little kids. And, you know, this has been said enough, so I'm not saying things that other people haven't already thought of or heard of. 
But, you know, sometimes it takes a Steve Kerr, right, a basketball coach to be a representative of the American people that are just so saddened, so tired, and really over the politics of this on both sides. Again, I'm not, I'm not pointing at one specific side here. Um, that's not where I stand or lie. I just, I, I think I, I empathize with what Steve Kerr said, and I, I kind of agree with him. I don't agree with everything he said because he did. I think he pointed out one side more than the other mm-hmm. in, in his impassioned speech, and I don't think that's fair, uh, considering the, the current presidency. You know, as a Democratic presidency that's had two years to do something, uh, just as Donald Trump did for four, and just as Barack Obama had for many years after Sandy Hook took place. So. I think there's blame on all sides, and I'm just tired, too, that we have to have conversations like this. Um, But I think as a follower of Christ, it just reminds me that my hope, you know, and I don't know Steve Kerr's faith. I don't think he's a Christian, but I could be wrong. But I don't don't find my hope in this world. It's Mm -hmm. a broken world, and my hope has to lie, has to stand on the firm ground of Christ. And that's... That's hard when you're seeing little kids lose their life, but that's where I cling to and that's where I I lie in is that hope. Yeah, I'm with you, Jason. I don't uh, have much sympathy for the whole political parts of these conversations, don't find our hope in those places. And and I think as Christians, again, regardless of Kerr's politics and regardless whether he is a person of faith or not, he went on, and we're going to play this clip now in just a, a moment, he went on to describe something that I think we need to avoid, which is falling into almost this psychological ritual uh, of how we deal with this. And, and we sort of need to be woken up to, to the trauma that's really going on. But he describes some of this and how we become numb to that. Let's listen in. I'm fed up. I've had enough. We're going to play the game tonight. But I want every person here, every person listening to this, to think about your own child or grandchild or mother or father or sister, brother. How would you feel if this happened to you today? We can't get numb to this. We can't sit here and just read about it and go, well, let's have a moment of silence. Yeah, go Dubs, you know. Come on, Mavs, let's go. Yeah, you've been around the block, Jason, I'm sure, with this too. And when we see it being addressed in, in the sporting realm, people stand up typically before the national anthem. We get in this little psychological rhythm where there's a moment of silence, but then 19,000 people are gathering in the arena and they're, and they're there to see the basketball game. And what, what Steve is trying to describe is that we really begin to practice empathy or understand that, that these could be our own kids. And, and, and the life-shattering impact of that should never bring us to a place in which we become numb to it. And this is such an invitation for us as believers to lead the way in, in, a, in a prophetic or truth filled kind of way to be those people of ongoing empathy. Empathy is the great game changer, Peter. I've said this for years uh, in different talks that I've given. Uh, I've talked about it in the books I've written. Um, I continue to, to preach that word. And I think that's what's missing in our country, in the divisional, the, the, the divisive country that we live in right now, because we've so aligned ourselves with our teams. You know, the world in many ways in the political side has become sports where we just align ourselves with the team that we root for and that other team is bad no matter what they say, no matter what they do, even if they're right, they're wrong because they're bad, they're on the other team. And that's a dangerous place to be as a follower of Christ, number one. But empathy, I think if we're ever gonna be Christ-like in the way that we live, in the way that we go about our, our daily lives to other people, especially those we disagree with, you know, Jesus was the most empathetic person I think you could ever say walk this earth when you read the scriptures and you see the gospels and you see the life that he lived. He didn't compromise his faith or his truth 
but he was always empathetic. And I think that's what we need. And if this doesn't get us to a point, like Steve Kerr said, where we can have empathy and look at these kids. I mean, just being honest with you, Peter, I'm sitting in my home office and I'm looking out my window. It's a beautiful sunny day here in Connecticut. And my daughter just got in her car mm. and drove to school. Now she's a senior in high school. She's much older than some of these kids that were lost a couple of days ago, but she's driving to school and I'm praying and trusting that today she's going to get to school. She's going to have a good day and I'm going to see her tonight. But those parents thought the same thing that other day and they didn't get that chance. Mm. And if you don't empathize with that, we will become numb and that's dangerous. That's dangerous. Obviously as followers of Christ, we need to pray that, that, that thoughts and prayers thing. I get why people um, become numb to that. But as followers of Christ, that's where we have our bedrock, right? Is our, our faith and our ability to pray and believe that God has a plan. But man, there's got to be action. And I've seen people talk about this, you know, faith without works is dead. And so we have to be able to not only voice with an empathetic heart what's going on and not have it be acceptable, but let's just put ourselves in the shoes of those that are hurting right now. Put all political biases aside. And I'm watching social media right now and how people are reacting. And there's still people who cannot put political, you know, sides, po political um, biases aside. They can't do that. And I'm like, man, if we could just do that for one second and look at what's happening and, and find a way together to figure out a solution and to not stand for this anymore. And it's like I said earlier, it's a mental health thing, obviously, what's what's happening with these young people who are going and doing these terrible things. It's also access to, to you know, those weapons that people are getting. I mean, that's a problem that people are getting. So can it be both? And can't we all sit at the table and come up with an actual solution in a, and, and, and moving forward in a good way instead of just saying, oh, sorry, they're disagreeing with me. We can't do nothing because we're losing our kids. And mm. that's the worst thing I can think about. Yeah, I think that's so well said, Jason. We tend to just, uh, after maybe a week or two after these horrific events, we sort of default then into our political camps and, and we lose all sense of the real issue. And I think what you described in terms of what Jesus's approach to this, uh, I, I think a posture of, of brokenheartedness that is perpetual in us for the people who are suffering in the midst of all that to remain brokenhearted will then lead us, I think, to different kinds of conversations and, and hopefully then to begin to intercede independent of the political system. Well, we've got to step away for just a moment. When we come back, we'll change the conversation. There's a great article and, and podcast as part of the Sports Spectrum Network in which we talk about the faith of the United States professional soccer player, Mallory Pugh. So stay with us here on Mornings with Carmen. I'm Peter Kapsner, filling in for the morning. Here's another Faith Radio fan talking about their favorite show. To say his program has been a blessing is an understatement. He helps the listeners understand the essential components of Christianity and biblical study. I'd say many people are smart or funny, but Bill has a rare talent and gift of being both. He has great energy, warmth, and skill, but he's also extremely humble and gracious, and through that makes God visible. And now
Well, the text line is lighting up from that last conversation. We're talking with Jason Romano of Sports Spectrum. Again, the last name is Romano. For those of you that are asking, you can go to sportsspectrum.com and see the work. Jason does a lot of work talking about faith within the context of amateur and professional sports. And Jason, we change the conversation here. We have a, a really interesting and uplifting story. The, the United States soccer team, especially the women's soccer team, has taken a lot of heat for their political views over these last three or four or five years. But we have this wonderful story of Mallory Pugh, who also is engaged to, I believe, is it Darby Swanson of the Atlanta Braves, the shortstop there of the world champion Braves? And, and you guys did a feature on her. Um, and I'm sorry, in terms of uh, what her discipleship program has been like and as a person of faith in sports. So take us into this a bit. Yeah. So Mallory Pugh, super young, by the way, 23, 24 years old. Um, so I'm 48. So when I talk <laughs> to somebody who's 23, I'm like, man, they're so young but yet so wise, right? And she's mm. been a professional soccer player and on this USA soccer team since 2016. She was, you know, the youngest player uh, to make her United States women's national team debut. Uh, and she was in the Rio Olympics as the youngest player on the roster. Um, and so when you think about just being thrown into the spotlight at such a young age, you know, there's a lot of pressure that comes with that. And there's a lot of identity issues, I think, for a teenager, you know, basically that's my daughter's age. And you know, so many young women have identity issues. And Mallory um, grew up in a Christian home, but we featured her recently on our Sports Spectrum podcast that people can listen to. And, you know, her faith is pretty awesome to watch and see how it's grown. She called 2021 the most important year of her life. Uh, that also, you know, coincided with her getting engaged to, as you mentioned, Dansby Swanson, the Atlanta Braves shortstop and world champion, you have to say now, with the Atlanta <laughs> Braves. But Mallory, being a professional soccer player herself, she's with the Chicago Red Stars of the National Women's Soccer League. And then also, like you mentioned, a member of our United States women's national team. Um, when talking to her, I just sensed a real humility uh, and a real um, I just confidence in who her identity was found in, not, not being found in sport, not being found in her achievement as a soccer player, but her identity in Jesus Christ and understanding that her faith uh, is what guides her. It's why she is now fueled to continue to be the best athlete she can be. And, uh, and we featured her on the cover of our brand new Sports Spectrum magazine, too, which is coming out literally this week. And people can order that at SportsSpectrum.com. But she's featured as one of the women in Christ. We have a women's issue that we have for this um, quarterly magazine that we have. And Mallory was just a pleasure to, to, to feature um, we actually got to go down and do a photo shoot with her for the magazine, and she was so pleasant and kind and just everything you would hope for in an athlete that you can root for. Uh, and if your kids are, are soccer players and they're looking for a role model or somebody to, to kind of emulate, you can't find one better than Mallory Pugh. Well, we're a big soccer family in our household, uh, Jason. We watched the Premier League finals with great interest this last weekend. And we've got five kids, two daughters, one 20 and one uh, 14. When you think about the conversation with Mallory, what were maybe one or two specific things as this young woman of faith that you would say, boy, I would love for my younger daughters to look to her in terms of some inspiration here? Yeah, I think the biggest thing was, number one, she, she wasn't trying to act like she had it all figured out. Mm. And if you ever talk to any young person, um, whether they're Christians or not, a lot of them think they have it figured out, including yours truly. When I was 20, I was like, yeah, I got this all figured out. And obviously I look back and I had nothing figured out. But I think she's very humble in understanding that she doesn't have it all figured out. So she seeks wise counsel. You know, she's getting, uh, you know, 
opportunities to, to meet with her team chaplain, to meet with the chaplain of the Braves, who has helped disciple her and Dansby as they prepare for marriage, um, seeking wise counsel. And I think that's the, the advice that I would say if young people are, are listening to this or parents of young people, and they want to know, okay, what, what, what can we do that's similar to what Mallory has done? And I think that's it, like seeking wise counsel, finding someone who's been there that you have, you know, in a place where you haven't been yet. And just receiving that, you know, being a sponge, you know, young people are often sponges, you know, in terms of learning when they go to high school or college or whatever, um, be that way with your faith and not try to say, I have it all figured out. Because if we're being honest, Peter, none of us have it figured <laughs> out, which is why we need this faith, we, why we need Jesus as our savior. So I think Mallory really represented that well uh, of just being humble and, and being open and, and, you know, understanding that she doesn't have it all figured out, but she's on the path to wanting to just learn more and grow more in her faith. Yeah, well, it's got to be a fun household to be in. I see that Dansby just uh, had four hits last night for the Atlanta Braves at the home run. So the, the two of them back and forth, I bet they have a pretty good time in their early marriage together. One more conversation, Jason. You had a chance to talk with Tony Dungy recently as part of a podcast. And what did you take away from that? We have just about a minute left or so. Yeah, I mean, it's Coach Dungy, right? There's right. not a whole lot to say about him and his accolades and the man that he is. But we talked really openly about some of the social media criticism that he took when he was a, you know, part of an initiative with All Pro Dad and Fatherhood, which he is such a proponent of the importance of fathers. And you know, he was down there in Florida with the Florida governor, and he got crushed on social media because he was with the Florida governor. And he responded and said, listen, guys, I'm not aligning myself with politics here. I'm just trying to help people become better dads, help men become better dads. And uh, I really like talking to him on our show about that and about how he can receive that with grace, stand firm in his feet in Jesus and wanting to serve like Christ. And uh, I just thought Coach, Coach Tony Dungy, I mean, anytime you talk to him, he's a gentle giant, right? Mm -hmm. He's such a wonderful, warm, humble person with an unbelievable platform. And uh, yeah, I highly encourage people to, to definitely go check that out. I love it. That's the voice of Jason Romano, for, uh, formerly of ESPN, now part of Sports Spectrum. Jason, for people listening this morning, where's the best place to find the work, the podcast, and the writing that you guys are doing? Yeah, sportsspectrum.com is the website, Peter. Thank you for having me. But check out sportsspectrum.com. All of our free content is there. I love it. Well, we'll take a short break away here and come back and preview what's coming up in the last half of this morning's Without Carmen edition for the 26th of May. quite a bit of feedback from that last conversation with Jason Romano of Sports Spectrum Magazine. For those of you that have children that are they are interested or they're engaged in any kind of athletics, I highly recommend Sports Spectrum. Going to sportspectrum.com, checking out their articles, checking out their podcasts as well. I know that uh, it's been around for quite some time, Paul Perot. I oh, grew, yeah. Growing up, Sports Spectrum was part of my life, and I found some in inspiration in these public figures they're not perfect, as Jason mm -hmm. said. None of us are. But it really is helpful for young people to see people that are in the same river that they're swimming in athletically to see exactly. some inspiration like that. And of course, Mallory Pugh and, and some of the people involved were really good. And I love how Jason, I'm not that it was not bad publication before, I'm not saying that, but I love how he really brings out 
the hard stuff. I mean, what these what these athletes are struggling with, because there's a lot of peer pressure they're dealing with, yep. and showing how they, through Christ, are rising above it. Yeah, so. for sure. It's a really, and I thought he did such a great job talking about Steve Kerr, the coach of the Golden State Warriors, mm-hmm. and getting away from the politics of the situation in terms of gun control and what we can do as empathetic, brokenhearted, compassionate people for one another. Well, we'll keep this conversation going. Up next with Chase Replogo. He's an author who has written about the five instincts of masculinity. There's always a reason to always choose joy. There's something deeper that the world can't destroy. Smile. It is about 23 minutes before the top of the hour here on the 26th of May. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for Carmen LeBurge and joined at this time by author Chase Replogle on a book about masculinity. And we're going to get into the five masculine instincts that Chase outlines in this book. Good morning. Good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. Yeah, great to be with you too, Chase. I'm, I'm sure that this uh, topic probably generated some degree of con- controversy, perhaps uh, some conversation from people, because we really are in a time in which traditional ideas of masculinity and femininity are undergoing pretty significant critique and, and dare we even say attack. And so what prompted your interest in writing this book? Yeah, well, I'm certainly aware that even putting the word masculinity in the cover of a book makes it controversial, sort of regardless of what's even in the book, right? We uh, we all sort of come to the topic with some preconceived ideas, but I'm first and foremost a pastor. I'm a man myself. I have a son and a daughter, a, a brother I grew up with, a father, a whole bunch of men in my congregation. And like you've described, I've watched over the last few years as many of them have just been really confused about really a basic question, what does it mean to be a man or what does it mean to be a Christian man and all the controversy around it. But I actually think we're in a season where um, there's been a kind of reaction to that controversy, where I think a lot of men have just given up on the conversation. I use the word malaise in the first chapter of the book, which is there's a sense that something's not right or something's confused or, or sick, but we're not quite sure what it is or how to put our finger on it. And the uh, the tendency can be to just disengage the question altogether. We just stop asking, what does it mean to be a Christian man? Or we stop we stop believing that there's a path towards something better as men because of the controversy. And that's the real danger I'm worried about right now. Yeah, we were talking, Chase, my wife and I, on a recent walk just about what you described as this masculine malaise, and and, uh, especially that young people in now the third generation or so removed from um, having the nuclear family being the common experience of family in American or Western culture, where where a father tends to be at home, and I'm not talking about that we had idyllic lives in the 1940s, 50s, and, and early 60s. We're we're not trying to go back to some honeymoon period, but but we are wondering about the impact now of of fatherless households and what that's done to concepts of masculinity. And, and I'm sure you see some of that in your work. Yeah, this is so oftentimes when we talk about masculinity, the cultural conversation has been around toxic masculinity, these traditional traits, things like stoicism or aggression or competition that are seen as harmful for men and should be deconstructed and replaced. There's been a kind of reaction to that that says, no, your raw masculine instincts are your salvation, your identity. They need to be indulged with a kind of wild abandon. But what I'm experiencing more than anything else is just men disengaging from any path forward into something better, into character, into responsibility. And you see that, as, as you're pointing out, in the, the fatherlessness crisis in our country that most will say is at the root cause of so many of our social challenges. We see men dropping out of education at an increased rate, work at an increased rate. Men lead in, in the suicide rates, the opioid addiction rates. Men are just sort of struggling right now and dropping out, disengaging from so many of the places they were previously engaged. And I think it's it's a symptom of 
us no longer having having this path forward by which we say to men, here's what it looks like to grow in character. Um, there's a line I like to quote from a, a Walker Percy novel where he says, he was writing in the 1960s, the sort of atomic era, and he says the only thing uh, that we feared more than the bomb falling, the atomic bomb, was that the bomb wouldn't fall. And all that there's now left to do is to fall prey to desire. Uh, mm. That's kind of a strange saying, but I think what he's getting at is the only thing worse than something catastrophic happening is just nothing ever happening. There being no reason to rise to the occasion. There being no need for responsibility or, or character or virtue. And what do you have at that point when there's no meaning left in life, but just an indulgence of desire, of instinct? Mm. Yeah, Chase, I'd love to get into a bit of the reconstruction and the hope and, and how we can carve out a pathway forward that is going to help remedy what I think we can fairly say without uh, being exaggerative is um, is a crisis. And we got here to some degree because of the fatherlessness, but also, too, I think we can safely say that institutions, whether they be businesses or government or religious institutions, when they are primarily being led by men over a series of decades, we've seen quite a bit of inappropriate use of power, inappropriate use of sexuality, um, just a, a lot of people that were really wounded. So we've seen this backlash against masculinity in particular that I think has given rise to how a lot of men don't feel like there's any place to engage anymore and, and have really been beaten down, maybe understandably so, because there was a legitimate critique of how men had wielded power for several generations. Yeah, I mean, if I agree that men bis- misbehave. There's no doubt in my mind, and I'm certainly no defender of, of men in general. Um but what I think has happened is we've robbed men of a path forward. Uh, mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis has a great place in The Abolition of Man where he talks about the three components of a human. The head and the stomach are the two that he starts with. By our heads, we have ideals we believe in. By our stomachs, our appetites and desires. And he says what we are producing, I think he said it prophetically for our own day, is men without chests, without a heart, a mm. cultivated muscle by which we regulate those two things. That's my experience with men. Most men I know, particularly in the church— they know all the ways that they go wrong. They know the ways that men have and do tend to go wrong. And they have a vision, an ideal of who they could be as a better father, as a better husband. Um, But they find themselves atrophied in that muscle of the chest, C.S. Lewis's chestless men. Uh, And instead, they find themselves giving into their appetites, their instincts and desires. Uh, Paul gives a little piece of advice to the young man, Timothy, who's pastoring in a really difficult place in Ephesus, where there are all sorts of conflicts around gender and and, uh, false worship. And he says to him, you'll show your progress to the people. This is moral progress. You'll show that you're growing in Christ. If you learn to keep a close watch on your life and a close watch on the teaching, and by this you'll save yourself and those who hear you. So you'll pastor well and bear responsibility well. Those two tasks strike me as really pivotal, and we tend to do one or the other, that you as a man have to pay close attention to what's going on inside of you. This is not the external work that we tend to pay attention to in culture and even often within the church. It's the internal work of what motivates me. Why do I struggle with these certain temptations? Two men can commit the same sin but have very different motives for why they've done it. What are those things going on in my life? And then you have to also take the step of saying, how do I pay close attention to the teaching, this gospel that I've received, what Christ has given me through the power of the Spirit? Those two works, in my mind, are sort of the left and right of progress as men, paying close attention to myself, applying everything that I have in Christ so that we can begin to grow in character. And we're chatting with Chase Replogo, who's an author and a pastor, written the book, The Five Masculine Instincts, A Guide to Becoming a Better Man. And Chase, in a moment, I'm going to want to get into some of the specifics on these instincts, but why don't you just take us into the idea of masculine instincts in general? What are you seeing in this? 
Sure. So I use, uh, again, I've quoted C.S. Lewis a couple times. I like his definition of instincts. He describes instincts as behavior as if from knowledge. So in other words, we act and behave as if we've decided, we've thought about it and made a decision, when in reality, we've assumed things. We've assumed the story that we're in, we've assumed right and wrong, a sense of morality, and that's really something that's gone unconsidered in our life. The uh, philosopher Nietzsche said that those instincts are weakened, they lose some of their power when we force them to rationalize themselves, when we start asking tough questions of why we do the things we do. All of a sudden, we have better clarity, and we, we're no longer being controlled by those instincts, but, but we begin to master them. The specific five instincts I list, I think it's always important to point out, these are not the five expectations of men, that to be a true man, you have to have these five characteristics, nor are they the five sins of men, um, the five instincts that I have in the book. Some of them are good things that can just go bad on men. But I took them from Shakespeare's stages of a man. He has that famous monologue, all the world's a stage, and each of us men and women have our entrance and exits. And he goes on to describe these five stages or ages in a man's life. And so I came along and gave him a single word and then used the Bible to look at how those might be going on in men's life. Um, those five instincts, sarcasm, adventure, ambition, reputation, and apathy. Those are great uh, instincts, Chase, and I think each one of them does uh, characterize some part of the journey. I'm certainly familiar with all of what you just described. We're going to step away for just a moment, but when we come back, I, I would like to get into at least a couple of those. And if you have a question for Chase or for me around this the conversation on masculinity, you can text us in at 877-933-2484. And when we come back in just a moment, we'll get into these instincts. And I'm going to start with this idea of sarcasm. Once again, Paul Perot, you come through with some sort of music that is representative of the conversation. Where'd there you dig you this song up? What? Well, I don't know. I don't okay, know. Okay, 1990s, the group For Him. Okay, oh, I do remember For Him. Yeah. Okay, a man you would write about. Yeah. Well, that's very good. It was on the radio back then. Didn't you? Didn't you listen to radio? <laughs> well, I, I did. I just my memory was a little off on that one. We're chatting with Chase Replogo this morning Sarcasm, about folks. exactly the five masculine instincts. And uh, Chase, one of them that you referenced before the break was the idea of sarcasm. And, and I will confess that I, I know when I'm in good stead with a friend of mine, when they tease me a little bit or a little bit of sarcasm. And, and, and of course, sarcasm can go uh, amok and really hurt people. But there is kind of a, a common language among men that I find often where when they become better and better friends, th this gets to be part of the equation. Well, I think you, the way you set that up is really helpful because it highlights the fact that all of these instincts can be totally legitimate, even good things in a man's life, but they can also become indulgences or blind spots, excuses sometimes for things we don't want to deal with. That's certainly the case with sarcasm. Um, sarcasm, you can find sarcasm in the Bible. There's places I think Jesus and the prophets are using sarcasm to make a point. But Shakespeare described this first stage in a, in a man's life as a reluctant schoolboy dragging himself to school in the morning. And I use the story of Cain to unpack this and try to help expose this, this instinct, this sarcasm. Cain, of course, the big story that every preacher or commentator has to deal with, the question in that story is, um, why does God reject Cain's sacrifice and not Abel's? And what struck me about that story is Cain has an opportunity to ask that question. When he's frustrated over it, God actually comes down and initiates a conversation with Cain. And he says to Cain, don't you know that sin is crouching at your door? It's the first time sin is mentioned in the Bible. It's actually God warning Cain about it. And its, it's desire is to rule over you if you don't rule over it. All Cain has to say is, why did you reject my sacrifice? What do you want from me? And not only does he get the question answered, but he now knows how to worship God better. 
Instead, what does he do? He walks away silent. He murders his brother. God comes back a second time. Where's your brother Abel? And you hear the sarcasm, am I my brother's keeper? Um, there's this theory that sarcasm is actually a developmental milestone in children, that when kids are young, if you have young kids, I've got two of them at home. If you say, did you eat the cookie? Sometimes they'll say no, even though you know you can see the crumbs and the chocolate <laughs> on their mouth. But as we begin to grow, we get more shrewd. And all of a sudden it's, well, what cookie? <laughs> you know, All of a sudden the sarcasm <laughs> begins to sneak in. Uh, and that's a little bit what's going on in the biblical story. Adam and Eve hide whenever they've sinned. They hide themselves in bushes. Cain comes up with a more clever device. He questions the question, right? Am I my brother's keeper? And I think what it points out is for a lot of men, although sarcasm can just be a good time and a joke, there's also a kind of sarcasm that can be a cover for contempt for God, contempt for authority. That whenever we have things pointed out in our life as a place where we need to grow, we feel, we feel we've been wronged, we've been judged, we feel reactionary and unable to control our reactions. And we end up sort of using sarcasm as a cheap cover. And there's a lot of men out there who struggle to take anything seriously. And when you do that, when everything becomes a joke as a way of avoiding it, you become that reluctant schoolboy. You miss the lessons that God is leading you into to mature you and grow you into a better man. So it can be a joke, and it can also be a tool we use to protect our immaturity, to protect ourselves, a behavior as if from knowledge that's really costing us what God has to offer. Oh, super helpful. We're talking about the book, The Five Masculine Instincts, A Guide to Becoming a Better Man. Chase, can you give us those five again for people that are maybe just tuning in? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, those five using Shakespeare's uh, scheme is sarcasm, adventure, uh, ambition, reputation, and apathy. Yeah, we just have a listener texting in uh, with, I think, a really helpful question for a lot of people, especially when I know there's a lot of longing for men to start walking out paths of restoration and recovery and walk into their masculinity. And the, and the question is this, how do I suggest or gift this book to a guy that needs to read it, but without offending them? And I think, Chase, that last part about offending them, I think guys tend to know that they aren't living up to maybe the kinds uh, of um, masculine, requ- I don't even know how to say it, it's not requirements, but just masculine invitations that we have, and they're, they're feeling like they're falling short of that. And yet it can be offensive then to gift them a book like this when you're just simply trying to help. Do you have any suggestions along those lines? Yeah, well, I understand the sentiment. I actually write in the book that I think a lot of men uh, are experiencing defensiveness, even though they're not quite sure what they're being attacked by or what what it is they're defending. We just Mm. feel on the defensive right now. So I I think the person asking the question understands that. Um, I think part of what, as a pastor, I've been trying to do more is understand what men are thinking about, what they're reading and listening to, and understand that sometimes those are not the same things that we imagine. We sort of frame in the church men's conversations around things like money, sex, and power. But often the questions or the interests men have right now, the starting point for those conversations can be very different. And I try uh, to take those seriously, to recognize recognize those things. Uh, but I think also recognizing that this book, at least the one I've tried to write, is not just a book on on how to behave better. Uh, instead of approaching the conversation that way, I think if we try to approach the conversation with men of recognizing like, hey, we all need a path forward. We we understand that this moment is con- is controversial. And how do we get beyond that controversy and just become the men we want to be? I hope that's what this book does is it's not there's there's empathy towards the moment for men. And sometimes that thing is missing from our conversation doesn't mean that we 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 don't ask men to rise, rise to the occasion and become better. But to understand that that at this moment is actually a more complicated conversation than some people realize is a good place to start. Yeah, for sure. As I think when we live under that uh, indictment of how to behave better, it ends up being a place where we feel a heavy weight day in and day out and, and ultimately experience failure. And then you, you sort of lose 
open to what you've described as apathy. I know that's one of the instincts that you describe, but I, I would love to talk a little bit more about adventure because I think it's something that is very much missing is a sense of adventure for men that really brings life to their soul. So take us into that one a bit. Yeah, so I use Samson's story here, and uh, Samson grows up as a Nazarite, which, by the way, his mother receives that message from the angel. He grows up at a time that wasn't really a high point in Israel's culture, and he finds himself increasingly obsessed with Philistia and all things Philistines, which was far more advanced than the Israelites at the time. And story after story, he goes down to the Philistines and these sort of adventure stories. He goes down into danger and risk, and the Spirit empowers him with strength. But what he does when he is delivered by that strength is each time he trivializes it and makes less of it. He turns it into a drunken pun. He gambles over at one point or he uses puns in a song for his own glory. There's this idea in our culture that adventure is the way to identity, that you've got to leave home expectation. You've got to leave home tradition, the people uh, place, and you've got to go find yourself in some sort of epic quest. And, And Samson does that over and over, but it doesn't actually leave him enlightened. It doesn't leave him with a greater identity or a self actualization. He actually becomes less discerning and more dull, less aware of what God is doing. I tend to say to men, there's nothing wrong with an adventure. Um, I love to get outdoors and do adventurous type things just as much as anyone else. But the real task is cultivating the kind of discernment that lets you recognize the story God is already writing Mm -hmm. in your life, to recognize that any real adventure, take any story of adventure you love, and in the middle of that story, you will find a protagonist, a hero, who feels like it's not working, it's not going somewhere. The thing all great adventure stories test is your willingness to commit, your willingness to see it through, to stay in that story. And so many men right now are bailing on on workplaces and on children and on relationships and marriages because they're just looking for that next thrill when really the true adventure is how do you discern and commit to this story God is already writing and recognize the adventure you're already in. That's the thing that Samson finally gets at the end in a tragic kind of way, but over and over struggled to recognize it work within him. Yeah, I think that's so helpful, Chase. We tend to individualize this sense of adventure, but what you're describing is inviting young men into a much bigger story in which it, it, it is adventurous at its core. The, the story of the unfolding kingdom of Jesus and how we participate within it is something that we can uh, tune our lives to day in and day out as part of a community of people. And, and in that, then we find, I think, our appropriate expressions of masculinity. Before I let you run, can you uh, give our listeners one more time the title of your book and where they can find it? Yeah, thanks. It's The Five Masculine Instincts. You can go to thefivemasculineinstincts.com, type it in or Google it. I've got an online assessment there, just 20 questions you can take and help you understand maybe where you are across these instincts. And uh, you can reach out to me there. I always love hearing from readers. So anything I can do to be helpful, uh, just shoot me an email through the website. I'm happy to take a look at it. That's great. Thanks so much again, Chase. We'll take a short break and when we come back, we'll wrap up our show for today on the 26th of May. Well, we started this show this morning a couple of hours ago talking about so many of the difficult and troubling headlines in our time, including uh, the Ukrainian war, conversations of LGBTQ, abortion, uh, and of course, the utter tragedy of the uh, the guns and, and, and the violence and the weapons that were going on in our school and in our churches and supermarkets over these last three weeks. And uh, just a reminder as we wrap things up that the unique invitation that Christians have as we become Christ-like in our culture is that we are people that grow in genuine empathy, 
We grow in genuine compassion. We grow in, in, in a genuine brokenheartedness that is independent of the politics of the day. And in that, we shine and bring a hope and light and compassion into this world. Have a great day, everybody. We'll catch you tomorrow on Mornings Without Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.